Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. And welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Glioblastoma multiform is the most common and most aggressive type of primary brain tumors. Most patients die within 12 to 19 months of being diagnosed, and only 5% of patients survive more than five years. And without conventional treatment, survival is about three months. Joining us today is Rusty Reynolds from New Jersey, who's here to tell us the story of his wife, Terry, who died one year ago from this aggressive brain tumor. Rusty, good of you to do this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Prior to your wife being diagnosed, what were some of the symptoms she was experiencing that prompted her to seek medical advice? In her case, it started a little bit slowly. She she was always very physically active, you know, working out, going to the gym and things like that several days a week. And, and she started to notice that she was getting just a slight headache after she would work out. Um, and particularly if she was doing anything like running or hopping or sort of, you know, with, with some sort of impact that might be li- even a little jarring. And she was coming home from those classes and, and had indicated that she, uh, she was had a little bit of a headache and wasn't huge, but it was just sort of there. Um, and that went on for about, a, I want to say a week to a week and a half. And so she, she called her GP and, um, and said, you know, hey, this is going on and what do you suggest? And so her GP was, was lovely and said, why don't you try some homeopathic things first, um, you know, try to relax and also maybe throw in some meditation. Maybe it's stress related and, and that sort of thing. So, so she did and, and it helped maybe a little bit, but, um, but by about a week or so later, she, um, was when she came home from, she was a, a high school counselor and she came home after school and just had a, a splitting headache and, and needed to just kind of lie down and sleep and was ice, putting ice packs on her head. It felt better to do that. Um, and so, so that, that went on for a couple of days that same way. Um, and, and then by that Friday, it just, it, it, she had actually stay home from work that day because it was too intense. And then Saturday I, I was like, this is clearly not right. So I called her GP's office and they suggested we go in for some imaging at the ER. And uh, once she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, what was her response? How did she react to that? Well, I mean, my wife was pretty awesome and she was always very much a a roll up her sleeves and get it done sort of person. And so her feeling was, A, it's going to be benign and B, we're going to take care of it and and just sort of deal with it. Um, You know, and that's, that's always been her her kind of the show must go on and we'll, you know, we'll get through this and, and make it happen thing. And um, so, yeah, so, I mean, initially, initially she was, uh, I don't want to say defiant, but, you know, she was, she was certainly optimistic and, and, and positive about being proactive about it. Did she have surgery at all? She did. Yes. So um, 
she we went to the hospital on that Saturday night and and um, and they did an initial CAT scan and they saw the imaging saw showed that there was a mass there of some sort and then um, I think it was because it was a weekend I think she couldn't get uh, an MRI specifically until like Monday morning it was kind of weird I don't know why it was the case but so it wasn't until Monday morning that they did the MRI of her head and and really saw in stark detail you know what what she had going on inside so it was that following thursday it was literally just five days later that she had the brain surgery you know rusty we've talked to people in the past uh with cancer and when the doctor says you have cancer um a lot of them say you're in a bit of a fog for about two weeks because of the intensity of of what you have and really doctors say there's nothing we can do about it you can have surgery chemo radiation which is fine but were were was you and your, were you and your wife like that i mean just totally overwhelmed by what is happening to her it was it was in our circumstance it was kind of it was kind of unique and 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 i say that only because my my dad had been dealing with uh, colon cancer and had been dealing with that for about a year and happened to be in hospice at the time so i was i was visiting him pretty regularly. Um, and when all this transpired, um, I, I, you know, let him know I wasn't going to be able to come on the weekend and so forth. And so, so the way it happened to transpire in our case was it was a Thursday, a, a week after her brain surgery, she was being released from the hospital and our, our surgeon had been coming in and checking up. And, and at this point we didn't know what the, what the pathology was. Um, and so, uh, so the plan was for us to, go uh, the Friday, so eight days after she got released from the hospital, she was going to, um, we were going to go over to her surgeon's office. He was going to like check the, the, you know, the incision and, and, and give us the pathology. But what ended up happening was two things. One is that while we were waiting for the transport people to come take us from the room to down so I could bring, you know, put her in the car and go home. Um, I got a call from the hospice that my dad passed away. So that was like mm-hmm. cruddy thing number one. And then the the thing number two uh, on top of all that was that, you know, we initially in the morning, that morning, we didn't know what the diagnosis was and we weren't planning to know uh, on, for, for another like eight days. But strangely, this this sort of Greek chorus of doctors that we didn't know came in without acknowledging us. And they they rattled through sort of all the components of my wife's case. Doctor number one, you know, she came in and here's who she is. And doctor number two, here's what we found. And doctor number three, here's, you know, what we did with the surgery. And doctor number four just rattled off. And the diagnosis was glioblastoma and blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, that was a new word for for us. Um, And my wife, I mean, she literally had had, you know, brain surgery a week prior. So she wasn't, I would say she wasn't at her cognitive best, you know, just I think she was hazy just because of that. Um, but for me, I, I happened to be sitting there and I just immediately Googled the word and saw the statistics right away. And so I actually knew for about a week prior to my wife knowing, because um, I wanted to, she was feeling optimistic, you know, and to the extent that she could. And, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to kind of harsh that, you know, or, or, or put a damper on that at all. But I immediately knew from what I had looked up that we had a, a journey ahead of us. And um, at the time, our daughter, we have one child, um, a daughter who was halfway through her senior year in high school. So kind of at that transitional point where, um, 
you know, where she's got a, a big life chapter change going from high school into college. And, and we were all looking forward to that and, um, and all of these things and, you know, prom and graduation and all of those, those kind of nice milestones. And so, so for me, my, my aim was to sort of shepherd both her and my wife through this without it, like, like without it being as traumatic as, as it would be if it were just sort of blatantly kind of, you know, you know, we were hit with it kind of, you know, right. harder. So, um, so I mean, that was kind of the nature of us. So I would say there almost wasn't really time to be in that stupor. Like when, when she got that result, when we went to the, to the surgeon's office that following Friday, and then he spoke to her and gave her, you know, here's what the deal is. She definitely was, was taken aback a bit. Um, but she also, again, was like, well, you know, Initially, her she she was like, "Well, we're going to fight it. We're going to do great." And then, you know, she kind of vacillated between that and and sort of the reality of it and the challenge of it and and you know what what might come to pass, uh, which ultimately did, of course. But um, but so you know, it was it was it was a challenge to to kind of keep her spirits up to the extent that I could, given what we had going on, you know. And um, I was just, it's really kind of like drinking from a fire hose you know there there really wasn't time to to uh pause even for a moment and and really reflect and and let it sink in at least there wasn't for me and and to some extent there really wasn't until a little bit later uh for my wife as well you had to be reeling to get all that news at once you lose your dad your daughter's doing these milestones and your wife has glioblastoma that's a pretty big load yeah. Yeah. It was, it wasn't the best day. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> Sheesh, no. Rusty, what did the doctor say was the next step in your wife's diagnosis? So when, when we finally met with a surgeon and he told her about all of that, basically it was, here's the standard of care treatment, which is, is chemo and radiation. Um, you know, then there were other options like Maybe, you know, if, if there was, if, if there was shrinkage of the tumor, then maybe going in and doing another surgery or maybe doing, there are these little discs they can insert that are like chemo discs and there are different things like that. But, um, but basically it was do chemo and radiation. That was sort of just the initial prescription. And, um, you know, and we not knowing this journey, I mean, we've had other friends and family members who had different kinds of cancers, but this is, was, you know, completely out of the blue. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it was just, we were kind of like, okay, this is what we have to do, you know, do what the doctor says. So. Rusty, tell us about the research you did that led you to discover cannabis. So I, I, um, I, this was just after, this is about five months in, she had just finished uh, radiation and that first round of chemo with it. Um, and she was pretty beat up. And, and so I, this was sort of, that was sort of the first time that even I could really sort of cognitively exhale a little bit, and and it happened that I was I was looking on on LinkedIn at uh, for something, um, and I came across uh, a coworker from my day job uh, who had just randomly posted some sort of clinical trial result from something that had gone on. I think it was at the the Cleveland Clinic, um, and uh, and it was a it was a, a vaccine trial that had had you know, the, the, the initial guy was successful, I guess, and he had GBM. And so, so that, that was sort of the first thing that made me go, okay, wait a minute, time to look at other, other options. So I just, I kind of started just searching for, you know, different alternative treatments and, and what kept coming up was medicinal cannabis. Um, and so, 
you know, and for me, I'm like, my dad was a state trooper for 20 years and then another 20 in law enforcement after that. And so like the idea of anything to do with, with cannabis, cause we're here in the United States. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, it's still a schedule one drug and it's still illegal and all of that stuff. And so, um, so the narrative that I grew up being indoctrinated with was that, you know, cannabis is bad. It's, you know, it's, there's, there's nothing good about it in any way and that sort of thing. And so, so I had to sort of get over my own initial skepticism slash reservations slash ingrained biases about it to, to really look into it. And I started to listen to people's, um, people's uh, other, other, you know, external sort of anecdotal things. Like uh, the first one that came to me, a friend sent, and it was a woman named Amelia Powers, who's over in the UK. And she, I think also had a, a GBM, different spot from my wife, but was using cannabis and had been going for a while successfully. And then ultimately I came across Cannabis Health Radio and and started listening. And I, that's where I happened on Lynn Cameron from Scotland and her story. Um, uh, but there were others as well. Dahlia Barnhart, um, the young woman who her mom, uh, Mariah, is a, is an advocate. Um, and then another young woman who I think you guys also may have done a story on, Alyssa Irwin up in the, the Midwest. So so that's how I ended up finding you guys and, and, and all these other stories. And the more stories I heard, the more I researched. And I also started, like, I don't have a scientific or a medical background, but, but I, you know, I, I try to I just try to understand stuff. And so I was starting to look up like all the, all the um, research that I could find. I found that original 1974 um, research that had been done at Virginia Commonwealth University um, that initially found that THC had a, a positive effect against certain cancers and, and stuff. And so that was really sort of the, the stepping off point for me. Um, and then it was just a matter of of researching and and trying to get into the New Jersey medical cannabis program, which we were able to do, but it took a while. Um, so so really for me, it was around month five or so that that I really started researching. But it but it took a a good another six to seven months to ultimately get to the point where I I was able to get product for my wife to take. So. It's interesting because uh, you talk about the biases that we have and uh, the mental blocks I think we have. And you, because your dad was a state trooper in in law enforcement, uh, you, I assume, had a bias uh, against cannabis. And I had, when I was in commercial radio, I used to interview Corey once a month. And I knew virtually nothing about cannabis, but it, it interested me because um, you can find on YouTube a number of people who have used cannabis successfully. So after I got fired, uh, Corey and I decided to put together together this podcast, and it really astounds me how many people we've talked to and how many people's lives have been saved as a result of using medical cannabis— Corey and I decided not to do recreational side of cannabis, not to do the business side, but just do the medical side because it's about people's stories, and stories are extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And go ahead. No, oh, it's just uh, just agreeing, absolutely. Yeah. Now I want to know when you first got cannabis and you gave it to your wife, how did she react? So the 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 first uh, batch that we got was from another uh, a friend of a friend who had been a cancer survivor um, who actually used it, but it it 
gave him like stomach and digestive issues initially. So he kind of just set it on the aside and he had a different kind of cancer, which thankfully he is, he's through and beyond now. But, but so that first batch, when she first took it, um, I mean, it just, it basically kind of made her sleepy. I mean, the really, the initial thing that, that I was like, oh, this is great was that because she was of the standard of care, like she was, you know, she was on anti-inflammatories. Uh, she was on the really powerful steroids that just, in her case, and I assume it probably is the case with everybody, it really just beat her up. Like it really just physically, it atrophied her musculature. It, it made her ravenously hungry. It, it, you know, made her her mind just always be sort of running and going and not able to really sort of relax and calm down. And the first the first day that I that I gave her a dose and we started with just like a half a grain of rice on the end of a toothpick, you know, in the morning and then a half a grain sort of at like dinner time, just to sort of slowly acclimate her to it. And, and she like on average, she was sleeping about two and a half hours at a time, two to two and a half hours at a time. And then she would wake up and be ravenous and, and sort of um, not able to rest. Um, and she slept straight away for about five or five and a half hours that first night, which mm-hmm. was, remarkable, you know, and, um, uh, and I was just so grateful that to see her get rest, you know, because mm-hmm. we heal when we rest and our bodies, that's how our bodies work. And when you can't rest, you know, you can't heal. And so not only was I grateful for, for that, for her, but, but it also gave me a little bit of time to exhale too. And, and then what I found initially going, you know, going forward in the beginning was that she was just, she was sleeping better. And that alone was, was a win, you know, and it wasn't until later that we had other sort of other evidence that I was able to extract from like her blood work and, and her MRIs and things like that, that showed that as far as I'm concerned, that there was a, a verifiable positive benefit to it. The ultimately the, the, the challenge for us was that we just came to it too late. And so by the time she was able to actually first take in a dose of, uh, um, you know, FICA or, or RS, um, RSO, um, it was 11 months into what ended up being about a 14 month journey for her, you know? And so she just, at that, by that point, she was so physically weak that the additional tiredness and fatigue that, that the medicine brought on, it was a challenge for her. Um, so, I mean, that was really, that was really the initial, the initial stuff, but I mean, she didn't have a negative, the biggest negative for her was actually just getting her to agree to do it because she was very much a rule follower. And she also like me came from that background of cannabis bad, you know, and, and, um, and so it took me, um, not only kind of continually trying to educate her, but also too, finally I had to, I just went to her doctor. I, I made an appointment with her, her oncologist and I went and I, I said, you know, I need her to do this. I need her to try this. You know, I know that you can't and or won't, you know, recommend it. I, I get that. Like, and I, I understand all the reasons why, not that I agree with them, but I understand them, but she needs to try this. And uh, if for no other reason than to help her sleep and get rest. And so he, you know, he said he would talk to her and, and I, I actually, I actually sort of put it to my wife in that we were looking to do uh, a high CBD oil, like some kind of like you can get over the counter in a lot of cases. And, um, and that's actually what we started off with for the first week that she used anything. I wanted to sort of acclimate her to, cause it's kind of an earthy flavor in general, even with the different strains, there kind of is an earthiness. Um, and I wanted her to, to, um, you know, sort of acclimate initially. And then, and so for the first week that she did anything, it was like, 
trace THC um, and higher CBD and full spectrum, but um, mm-hmm. but that. And then it wasn't until week two that um, that she started taking the the high THC stuff. So, and she ended up in hospital again, didn't she? She did, yeah. Um, so we were actually right at the onset in in January um, of 2019. She, uh, we had come home from visiting our daughter up and she goes to school in Rhode Island and, and we were visiting her for something activity that she was doing up there. And we came home that night and my wife had, uh, her first seizure, uh, which was a grand seizure. It was very scary for certainly for both of us. But, um, and that was around mid January ish. And so, um, like around the 14th of January or so. And so off to the hospital, we went and, and she was in the hospital for a couple of days and then came home and they had bumped up some of her medications a little bit more. But as soon as that, I mean, as soon as I was already in the process of trying to get hold of RSO and, and, and get it in her and all that stuff. Um, but as soon as that seizure happened, I was like, you know, that's kind of like a point of no return. You know, you normally don't go back once that starts happening. And so I knew that time was really of the essence and I needed to get this stuff going into her as fast as I could. Um, so it took about, it took about a, a, a little over a week, I think it was, um, and then I was able to to get her going first on the first on the high CBD version, and then with the RSO. Was she receptive to, to taking more? Um, yeah, she was okay with it. It was just it was really the only thing was just how how fatigued she was. Um, I mean, that was because uh, like even just to get up and go to the restroom, you know what I mean? Like it mm-hmm. was just I would have to help her up and stuff and. Um, uh, and, you know, things like that. It was just very, very, um, it made me be very, have to be very hands-on with her. We didn't have like a caregiver in the home, like another person, like a nurse or a, something like that coming in. Um, so, um, so I was fortunate that my, my employer was allowing me the time I needed to, to be home and to work, you know, through all of this. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was really for her, the only reason we couldn't get up to sort of the higher amounts and and sort of that that generally prescribed is it, I think it's sixty grams in ninety days right or thirty grams in ninety days I forget what it is but um uh, but in any event we just we weren't able to get her up to an amount that I think she really needed to be at to to start to to win the battle so she was kind of staving it off like we got to an amount where where if you look at her MRIs and stuff they were stable um, so in her case she was only on the oil for two months because at the end of that two months it happened timing wise that she started having chest pains which ended up being pulmonary emboli um, clots coming up from her legs making their way into her lungs and stuff and so um so we had to go to the hospital then they sent her to another hospital um and and they wouldn't allow us even though i snuck in a couple of them in capsule form they wouldn't allow me to continue to give her the the rso um because the doctors couldn't like, you know, officially verify what it was, I guess. And so, and I said to them, look, we've been doing this. And she's had essentially, she'd, when we first started taking it, which was about a week after that first grandma seizure, she had, uh, she had like a very short focal seizure for about like seven or eight seconds. Um, and that was it. And, and so within that two month window, she had no other seizure activity. And, um, uh, which was pretty remarkable. And then once she ended up having to go to the hospital for the emboli and she, and I wasn't able to get it into her system on the regular basis that we had been doing it, um, 
she started to have more seizure activity within within like two days or I think three days. She had three grand mal seizures. So, darn. It's to me. It's amazing to me how doctors are so blind to this. Even in discussing the endocannabinoid system, they had, mm-hmm. a lot of them had no idea what it is. Yeah. And they they won't allow you to take cannabis, but they will prescribe some very very dangerous drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it was remarkable. You know. I mean to see to see the. I mean literally the damage that that those drugs did to my wife physically. I mean, she was very active. She would do like mud runs. She had been a Broadway dancer. Um, like she was very physical, you know, and in good shape. And it just, within very short order, it really just sapped her of, of strength. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's amazing that. And, and what's also interesting is every time we went to the hospital, I would, I would, you know, gently and, and diplomatically try to educate the doctors and the nurses about cannabis and what I was finding and the endocannabinoid system, all that stuff. And, um, and to your earlier point, like none of them knew anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was really, it was really fascinating to me. And so I, I kind of made it a, a little mini mission while anytime I were in the hospital that I would strike up conversations or happen to strike up conversations with nurses, doctors, whomever, um, that I would, we make mention of the fact that we had been using it and she had been having pretty good benefits, but that we hadn't been able to use it anymore and so forth. And so I would get into conversations with, with these various healthcare professionals who are all, you know, well-meaning and want to help people, but they're locked into a system, at least here in the U S where, where it's verboten to even discuss this stuff to the, to the, to the point that after I had had a conversation with, I think it was three or four um, nurses in, in this particular hospital, the one came up to me a little bit later and said, you know, would you mind writing down for me some of the information that you gave? I, you know, and I had to literally like <laughs> under the table, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And it was just, uh, just the fact that that's the environment. It's, it's, it's frustrating to me. So. You know, you mentioned earlier Lynn Cameron of Scotland who has or had the same brain cancer as your wife, and she's alive and flourishing today after almost four and a half years. If you knew about cannabis, and cannabis was legal where you live, if you knew about it in the beginning, do you think Terry would be alive today? You know, I have to say I, I do. Um, uh, and and I know that's, you know, it's it's easy enough to say that sort of on, on this end of it and, and and maybe sort of, you know, um, overly optimistic. I get it because GBM is so, so difficult. But what we saw with her physical benefits, so, you know, within the two months that she was on RSO, about about two days before we started or three days before we started, she had an MRI. So we knew what her tumor looked like. And then when she went to the hospital two months later for the, the chest pain, they did another MRI. Um, actually, we did it just the day before that, because we were going to start can- uh, uh, chemo again. and But what was holding them back from doing that were her liver enzyme numbers were very high, and those were ultimately coming down as well from the from the cannabis oil. But um, but the the MRI at the ending two months showed no no change, like no growth. Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned earlier, left untreated, it can it can essentially almost like double in size in like three months and 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 you die without treatment, you know? And so given how aggressively it grows, the fact that within that two month window, the only thing that we were doing that was really proactive toward treatment was cannabis oil. We weren't doing any chemo. Um, 
you know, the steroids just kind of help keep swelling down. Same thing with anti-seizure stuff, just kind of stops the, the seizures. But there wasn't anything we were proactively doing to treat the cancer um, that Western medicine was doing to actively treat it. But but the cannabis oil was going into her system. So her liver enzyme numbers essentially cut in half uh, within those two months to the point where they were comfortable starting in the chemo regimen again. And then that's when literally like the next day is when the chest pains started happening and we went to the hospital. So, um, so we didn't ever, she didn't ever end up going on cannabis uh, oil uh, or chemo, excuse me again. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, having seen that positive benefit from her liver enzymes, having seen that there wasn't any growth in the tumor in that window of time, seeing how much, you know, there were no seizure activity, there was, she was sleeping better. Um, you know, I really think that had we been able to get in earlier, because she was also really physically strong too. You know, it wasn't like at the at the onset of the diagnosis and all that stuff. It wasn't as though she was frail or, you know, or weak or whatever. And so I really think that, you know, she had a pretty robust physicality that I think would have been able to handle the the you know the the heightened intensity of of higher doses of RSO and so forth. I think you're absolutely right in uh, suggesting that your wife may be alive today if cannabis was legal and you could give her the cannabis that uh, you wanted to give her. Because when I talk to people about cannabis, I always refer to Corey's story, who was given, what, Corey, four to six months? Two to four, six on the outside. Two to four, six on the outside. You did no chemo, no radiation, researched cannabis oil, and that was about eight years ago, correct? Yeah. Yeah. July 2011, I was diagnosed. So you're alive today because of cannabis. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah, with, that's amazing. Rusty, with your wife dying this horrible disease, what's been the hardest thing for you to deal with? Well, I mean, being a single dad now, you know, a single parent is 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 difficult, and and wanting to, wanting to, you know, you want to as a, as. I mean, any uh, mom, a dad, a whatever, you know, you want to protect your family. And, and, and so to the extent that I can, you know, I've been very, very forthright with our daughter, you know, and talking about this with her and she's, she's pretty educated about it all now too, which is great and has shared some of it with her friends and, and so forth, which I love. But I mean, really for me, um, it's, it's the largest thing is, is just wanting some semblance of, whatever the new normal is, some semblance of normalcy and consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, I'm still sort of putting our lives back together. I mean, you know, our house is still a bit disheveled a year later, still trying to work through piles of things and stuff like that. And, you know, there's, there's so much sort of, and, and again, like when my dad passed away that, that day, and then, you know, I kind of found out what my wife was dealing with and that all of that together, there really wasn't, for me, time to grieve my dad's passing um, mm-hmm. because I was already into this next chapter with my wife's illness. Um, within that year, actually, our, our beloved family dog died as well. Um, you know, we had him for like 11 years. So it was, there were all these, these you know, major things happening and there really wasn't time. And so a lot of it for me is, is allowing myself to grieve as well, um, you know, and, and, and self-care. Uh, I mean, I, I, gained like 30 pounds during that, that year, that 14 months or whatever, just because every time she ate every two hours, I would eat something with her. And, you know, usually it was comfort food and oftentimes it was, you know, two or three or four in the morning. And, you know, so, so just trying to get back to some sort of 
positive and healthy physicality for myself as well, um, you know, that's that's a big thing. As uh, the, and also too to be able to do that and to sort of set that example for for my daughter is is it means a lot to me to be able to do that as well. So I think really, you know, the the, the parent thing and and thinking too and grieving the that the plans that you had that that now you don't get to realize, you know, I mean, growing old together with your your wife or husband, your best friend, you know, and, and as parents watching all those milestones together for our daughter and, and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, for me personally, it's about just finding constructive ways to, to not avoid the grief, but to work through it and, and walk through it and, um, and, and hopefully use it to, to positively impact other people by way of creating awareness like this and stuff. So, I'm wondering, uh, Rusty, how this has changed you, Rusty Reynolds, in any way? Well, I mean... Besides your 30 pounds that you gained. Yeah, yeah. That was was a negative there. Um, I think, think, um, I mean, for me, it's it's about now, and, and I'm really, like, trying to sort of as I'm sort of coming out of this initial, this sort of year of firsts haze um, uh, of all these anniversaries um, in, in May was, as you mentioned, it was mm-hmm. uh, a year ago in May that my wife passed away. Her birthday was also in May, Mother's Day also in May. And so challenging month. So as we're sort of coming out of this, I mean, my feeling is I, I don't have a problem advocating for this now freely at all. Um, and and the reality is is that uh, you know if if somebody came to me and said hey you know my my family member or my friend or I or whatever you know got this diagnosis and and we want to you know we're interested in in looking into medical cannabis or whatever I would happily navigate them through through that to the best I can but I've been trying to um, I've been trying to just educate our circle of friends and 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 to to the extent that I'm able to you know broader beyond that um, just by creating awareness initially. I do have a I have some some thoughts about um, creating a, a program uh, through actually through a couple of nonprofits that I've I've worked with years ago um, to to try to set up sort of like a voluntary tracking uh, for people who who do get a cancer diagnosis and people who do ultimately use RSO, um, I'd love to be able to create like a, uh, an anonymized voluntary database, mm-hmm. um, you know, of here's, here's what my diagnosis was. Here's the product that I used. Here's, you know, to the extent they would be able to find out, here's the percentage of THC or here's the percentage of, you know, the other cannabinoids and, or, or terpenes as well and all that stuff. Um, and I'm not, I'm not yet to a point where I'm ready to approach those entities and, and present something, I really need to sort of put it together. I have it pretty well formulated in terms of what I want to propose to them. But, but I think, I think advocacy for me is, is that's probably the biggest thing that's changed is this is something that was never even on my radar, like ever even a thought. And, um, and, and to now, I, I feel like I've done a kind of a 180 on the whole, on the whole medicinal cannabis thing because of that. So that's yeah, your life has really taken a right turn, hasn't it? It's uh, yeah. it, it's given you a new direction and yeah, a new purpose it, it, in life, just like uh, Corey helping people from around the world seven days a week. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I can tell by the way you talk about your wife and the way you research this and the way you tried to help her that you truly loved her, 
And I know life will never be the same for you, but you, given what you've told us, and uh, you want to be an advocate for this, I think you will change many, many people's lives. Mm-hmm. And good for you. Thanks. I, I hope to. I really hope to. You know, yeah. and maybe maybe change some change some public policy along the way too. That would be a nice thing. So it will. Rusty, it was great of you to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate their time. We'd like to thank uh, you, the listener, for supporting us and sharing our podcast with others who would benefit from hearing these testimonials about the healing power of cannabis. And if you'd like to support us, there's a few ways you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month on our Patreon page. And you can also make a one-time donation through our website. And the other way you can help us is to keep spreading the word about the show. Write a review on iTunes or whatever you listen to, wherever you listen to these podcasts, and share the podcasts on social media. You know what? You just might save a life, and we greatly appreciate it. We encourage you as well to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I think we've got about 7,900 people on YouTube, and let's try and hit the 10,000 mark by uh, the end of the summer. See if we can do that. And uh, we're very grateful for your support. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.